And please take out your copies of God's Word as we look together at Luke chapter 16. We will be finishing the chapter today, Lord willing, as we look at verses 19 through 31. 19 through 31. Though I am going to start in verse 13, because I think it has relevance uh, to our passage, but our focus is going to be on 19 through 31. So starting in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Any who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who fasted, feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our Lord Jesus and ask his blessing on our text today. 
Oh, Jesus, we have a very challenging teaching of yours in front of us. I pray that it would search into our hearts, that we would find ourselves in these passages, and that we would find hope in your gospel. I pray that you would give me strength and wisdom as I preach. Let us all hear this well. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Where is somewhere that you have always wanted to go? For some reason, even though the advent of high-definition television and high-resolution photographs, seeing the place that you want to go on television or a computer screen just doesn't seem to cut it. Looking at a picture of Paris does not give you the smell of the bread and the cheese and the fine wine that you can hear and smell and all the sounds that would occur around Paris. We want to be in places that we might enjoy. Or if Paris is not your thing, perhaps the Grand Canyon. Seeing the wonders of creation's beauty that are in America. Or perhaps places of great historical significance like Israel. Getting to be in the land, possibly where Jesus spoke the very words we heard today. We want to go to those places because that's a different spot than we have here. You can't replicate the experience of Israel in your living room. You can't replicate the feeling of the Grand Canyon's edge in your own backyard. Because it's different. It's a real place. It's unlike what you have before us. And those of us that want to go to those places will take great expense, plan for months to be in a place for one to two weeks. But there is another place, or one of two, that all of us are going to go to, whether you plan for it or not. We're all going on a trip. And that trip is not one or two weeks. That trip is eternity. We tend to forget because there are spiritual locations that heaven and hell are real places. Especially hell. We don't like to think about that as being a real place. But it is. And it's a place that Jesus talks far more about than he talks about heaven in the passages of the New Testament. And in fact, this is one of those places. We don't like to talk about hell a lot. I think there's a couple of different reasons for it. One is that it's an unpleasant topic. None of us want to think about a place of eternal suffering. Some of us may even wonder whether or not such a thing is fair. How is it that God could punish someone for all of eternity? And we struggle with that. We don't like to think about it. And preachers don't like to preach on it. Or it could be we've stopped hearing about hell because we heard about it so much in the previous generation of what has been called um, fire and brimstone preaching, those revivalists of our old times and our childhoods. But they weren't mistaken to preach that way, to hold up for us the horrors that await those that won't come to Jesus. The mistake, however, that I think we see in a lot of hellfire and brimstone teaching is that the gospel was not held up as much. That the way of escape was not proclaimed as perhaps mightily as it should have been. But I think in this generation, we've swung too far the other way. We want to focus so much on the gospel, as we should. 
But we forget about what the gospel has saved us from, the wrath of God. And because of that, we're missing a glimmer. We're missing what also makes the gospel even more beautiful, to see what we have been spared from. So that's what we're going to look at today. Of all the trips that one can take, of all the destinations to get to, the easiest one to get to is hell. To get to hell, all you have to do is do what naturally comes to you, whatever that is in your own life. It can even look like good things, too. Our natural bent is rule keeping and making sure that we look good in front of a society and others. That can be an easy way to hell as well. Holding up for ourselves these, our own righteousness. And that's what we see here in this passage today with the rich man. He did what came naturally to him. And we see where this has taken him. So we're going to look at these things today. We're going to look at this passage and look at it from two points today. The first is that your financial status is not your spiritual status. Your financial status is not your spiritual status is what we're going to look at in these first two or three verses. And then the next one, second point, as you can see in your outline in your bulletin, that hell is real, serious, permanent, and warned about. That's what we're going to take a look today. So, Let's see our story. We have two characters in the story that Jesus tells us who could not be more different. The contrast is stark between these two people. No two lives could be lived differently. We have this rich man who is clothed in purple and in fine linen. Purple was an incredibly difficult dye to get a hold of. So it was constructed out of this snail that they had, and it was really hard to get a lot of it, so dye was really expensive. Really, only royalty could afford to be dressed in purple. And then he speaks of, this would have been his outer cloak, and his fine linens would have been something that would have been like an undergarment for us today. This man is clothed in the finest that, that the world can give. He's also feeding in ways that no one else ate like that. We have become really accustomed to how we eat because we can have meat be prepackaged and frozen and sit in our refrigerators for days, even weeks at a time if you put them in the freezer. The idea of having meat at every meal is something that becomes something of a granted to us. We say, you got to have your protein. But according to scholars, that's not how people ate back then. Most of the time, it was soup, fruit, and bread. You had meat only on very special occasions because in order for you to have meat, you had to slaughter one of your animals in the back. And that takes a while to come back if you're going to get another one. Meat was something for weddings, once-in-a-lifetime occasions. But this man is feasting sumptuously every single day. The amount of money that this man has is staggering. To put it in our own terms, this is a man who has multiple sports cars, a couple of yachts, hundreds of acres across multiple houses. This is a fantastic amount of wealth. It's not described how he got it, whether it was inherited or whether it was earned. The only question that the Bible is concerned with is what does he do with it? And this is what he's done. 
is live for himself. Now we see verse 20. This is at the rich man's gate. Is laid a poor man whose name is Lazarus, covered with sores, and is wishing to be fed with what falls from the rich man's table. Completely different character. The one that at this point in the story we wouldn't want to be, if we're honest. Who wants to be leaned up against a gate because you're too sick or too weak or too hungry to be able to move anywhere else? Stuck here and just wishing that you could eat the crumbs that fall off the table. It doesn't matter if it fell out of the rich man's beard. We just wish we could have something to eat. But he has nothing. And he's covered in sores. And he can't even move enough to get away from the dogs that are licking them. By the way, dogs at this time were not the cute little domesticated puppies that we see and are used to today. These would have been mangy, feral animals that would have roamed around in the city. In fact, according to scholars, this act of being licked by a dog would make him unclean, be unable to get to the temple. Cut off from everything. The only thing the man has, to put it grossly, is bodily fluid, and even that is being taken from him. To make it all ironic, this man is named Lazarus, which means God helps. It's like being named Lucky and in this position. And you could imagine those that pass by would think, well, if this is what help looks like from God, then he must be cursed. You don't get into a position like that and not have some sort of disfavor with God. And we honestly think a lot the same way. Life is not that different today than it was then. There are the incredibly rich and there are the incredibly poor. You can see this play out in American cities all over the place, even our own. I looked at... uh, Luxury loft apartments that are available in Birmingham today. Two to three thousand dollars a month to stay in an apartment in downtown Birmingham. And I've I've been to the to that apartment building and I know there is a homeless camp that's in the alley behind it. It's just like what we see here. Now we can say, well, in a lot in American society, there are people that are homeless there, and a lot of them have made bad decisions. You're exactly right, they have. But we're very quick to assume that anybody who's in that position is there because of their own bad decision-making. That wasn't the case with Lazarus, as we'll see in a few minutes. But I'll bet you everyone else pretty much thought that as they walked by, seeing the rich man's palatial grounds and saying, well, he worked really hard. He's earned what he's got. Yes, of course he's in fine linen. He deserves to be. And this man, Lazarus, whatever he gets is whatever he gets. He should have done better. We can assume a lot based on people's accounts, based on how they're dressed, based on what they look like, and assume that because people are rich that they must be blessed of God, and that if they're poor, they're cursed of God. We can do this the other way in our own society, saying it's like, well, if someone is poor and has little, that must mean that they're really holy because they've renounced all earthly possessions and those that have a lot must be spiritually decaying because they have a lot of possessions. 
What this passage is going to show us, what we've seen is where this passage is going, is that this financial status is not an indication of spiritual status. How much money you have is not, does not impress God. And that's what he sees here in this passage. But their lives, as different as they are, this life that they experience in the here and now is not forever life. We tend to forget that. That this life is not all that we have. But in fact, this life actually makes up a very small portion of what our total existence is going to be. Instead, both of them die. The rich man is given a proper burial, and Lazarus' burial is not mentioned. Might be because Lazarus wasn't. But instead, the angels carry Lazarus to Abraham's side, and the rich man ends up in Hades being in torment. This is an amazing reversal, isn't it? We think the story is going in one direction. Indeed, if we were to picture our own selves today, we would think that the rich man is supposed to be going to heaven and Lazarus is supposed to be going to Hades. But it's a reversal. And this should cause us to take some pause. It's easy for us to exempt ourselves from the rich man's style because we live in such an affluent country. It's easy for us to think that this parable can't possibly apply to us because we're not dressed in the finest of clothes and feasting sumptuously every day or sitting on top of a lush retirement account. The fact that we are here in America puts us in the top percentage of the most wealthy people in the world. Folks who have been to Africa will tell me that, the, that people that are, will crawl out of a hut and will work for the food that they can get that day, one to two dollars a day, if they're lucky. Even us who are here in America, those of us who are in this room, are likely doing better than most of the rest of the country. In fact, a full 10% of America is wondering where breakfast and lunch is coming from today. 35 million people in our country. We do well to take a close look at this story. Because this implicates us. We have more in common, at least when it comes to the wealth, we have more in common with the rich man than we do with Lazarus. So let's see what happens to him as we look to our second point, that hell is a real, serious, permanent, and warned about place. This is not a good place to be, to put it mildly. This is something that Jesus had spoken of in a separate place in Matthew 13, verses 41 through 42. It says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we see depicted before us here today, that this rich man is in torment as he is in hell. And we see, horrifyingly, that he is asking for the smallest of mercies. Look what he says here in verse 24. He calls out Father Abraham. Look how he references his own heritage here. I'm a Jew, remember? That hasn't saved him. 
He says, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What a small request. The rich man's not asking for his salvation. He's not asking to get out of here. He's not asking for a shower. Not even asking for a full cup of water. He just wants a drop, something, to cool even the tiniest part of his body. But that request is denied. As one commentator put it, not even the smallest of mercies will meet you in hell. There is nothing good to be found there. Some of us have found ourselves to be in pretty desperate places here in this life. And we have wrongly said that what we are experiencing is hell on earth. Because here, there, you can always find some measure of hope in what you're going through. We can find some solace in the promise that all things work together for good to those who love God. No matter how much pain we're in emotionally or physically, we can always look to some glimmer that there will be hope in how this will change us towards Jesus. But in hell, that promise stops. Everything that happens to you in hell is for your detriment. There is no hope of recovery. There is no hope of relent. It goes on and on and on forever. And that's what Abraham tells the rich man here in verse 25. He said, you remember that you in your life received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The rich man lived for the good things and that's all he got. And Lazarus, he received bad things. Commentators point out that it's not saying your bad things. So it looks like Lazarus was not responsible for why he was in this desperate straits that he was. He tells the rich man, you lived for the good stuff. That's all you wanted in life was to prop yourself up, have your own selfish desires met. So that's what you got. There's nothing left for you. This is all that you wanted. This is not some sort of endorsement of karma. He had his good things and this one had a bad things and was just doomed to be on this wheel of reversal for all of eternity. That's not what is being said here, as we'll see in a moment. But what's happening here is that this man only wanted the good things in life and had no intentions of sharing it otherwise. Notice also, and I didn't see this until some commentators pointed out in verse 24, he knows the poor man's name. Lazarus was sitting at his gate. The rich man was not unaware that there was a poor man sitting right outside his door. He not only knew he was there, he knew what his name was. And apparently did nothing. There was room at the feast. He was feasting every day. Even if he had to, he could have just dropped to every other day feasting. Instead of having the finest of undergarments imported from Egypt with the fine linens, he could have at least had just a few spare clothes he could have given to this poor Lazarus. Could have at least pulled him inside, let him 
eat from the stuff that falls on the table. Something. But the rich man did none of that. This is not an indictment of him being rich. It's the indictment of what he did with it. God had given him all of these wonderful things. But he didn't use them for the purposes that God would have. So now he is in anguish. That's his whole lot in life now. Or his whole lot in afterlife. And here Lazarus is being comforted. What a strange reversal that is for Lazarus. Doesn't that change how we view Lazarus' life now? Being propped up against the gate? Or for those of us that would have liked to have been the rich man in the early part of the story, we'd look now and see where he is and we say, oh, well, maybe I'd rather be Lazarus. You can see that when we have suffering in this life, when God brings hard things into our life, we could look at Lazarus and say, he hasn't missed anything. I'm sure he wanted to be at the rich man's table. He deserved to have the food of that rich man's table. But God has taken care of him. Now he is at, in some translations say, Abraham's bosom, leaning against Abraham's chest, would have been a mark uh, in ancient times of intimate table fellowship with Abraham. This is something that now Lazarus has, and the rich man never will. This great chasm has been placed, divine passive, something that God has done to ensure there's no transfer. The rich man is never going to heaven, and Lazarus is never going to hell. So this gets the rich man thinking. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Look how he still wants to order Lazarus around. He still hasn't changed. He still wants Lazarus to be the errand boy for him. To go and tell his brothers. Which is an odd request if you think about it. Lazarus was sitting at the rich man's gate for who knows how many years. And that didn't seem to do the rich man any good. But he thinks that this might make a difference for his brothers and wants him to go to them and to warn them of coming here. But then Abraham says, look what he says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You have the words of God, your brothers. Let them hear what God has already said about this. And indeed, if we were to look back through the Old Testament, there were all kinds of prohibitions against this sort of behavior. In fact, I was just reading a few of them yesterday. When you went to go gather up your food that was in your farm, you were to go once. If you were to go back and look and see there was some extra fruit on the tree you missed, you were supposed to leave that there for the poor that were to come along were all kinds of laws that were built into this that would prevent this sort of behavior. But he's not listened to any of that. They're not going to listen to the words of God, then who are they going to listen to? Well, the rich man has a counter to that one as well. And says, it's like, well, yes, they have the law and the prophets, 
But let's take a look at verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. One commentator pointed out there's a subtle criticism that the rich man has of how this system works. It's like, yeah, I had the law and the prophets too, but I would have changed if someone would have warned me to come back from the dead. Then Abraham continues to verse 31. It says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's a hard thing to hear. As one commentator put it, if you can hold in one hand the law and the prophets and treat the, the poor in an ill way, what hope is there for you? You have all the words of God. And if you're not going to listen to any of these words, there is no amount of anything that's going to change your mind. There's a lot of folks that will say, if God will just show me a sign, then I would believe. Or atheists who would say, it's like, well, if God exists, why doesn't he just part the clouds and say, here I am? Why all the mystery? I think that's what we see right here in this passage. No matter what miraculous work could be done from you, if you don't want to see it, you won't. If you don't want to submit to it, you never will. And this should be a really sober warning for us. Or if we haven't come to Christ yet, this is as much warning as you're ever going to get. If you're waiting for a dream, it's not going to come because it won't convince you. If this doesn't, that won't. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, contrary to the story of a Christmas carol, it's not going to change you if the words of God do not. It's a sober warning. And it pulls together what the rich man's problem really was. It's not the fact that he was rich. Abraham himself was rich. So it was Solomon and David and Job. Wealth wasn't the problem. It was the fact that he didn't listen to what God's word had said about what to do with it. And it's not just wealth that we could apply to apply this passage to ourselves. Maybe we don't have a whole lot of money. That doesn't mean that we're free of responsibility. We've all been given time. We've all been given talents and abilities, energy. And it's very easy to just say, well, I'm, this is for myself. I want to spend this on me. But that's not what God's word tells us to do. It tells us to spend and be spent for the kingdom. To put our hands to the plow and not look back. And for those that don't, for those that will not listen to what Moses and the prophets say or what Jesus says, this is the fate that awaits. And it is guaranteed. All you have to do is just keep going in the direction you're already going. You'll find it. It's a sober warning. But also in verse 31, there is an interesting promise in there. We really can't help but think about Jesus' resurrection, can we? 
the religious leaders of the day that fulfilled this exact teaching. When the Pharisees and the scribes had accomplished their goal of getting Jesus crucified, they put him in the tomb, they sealed it up, and Jesus got up anyway, was resurrected anyhow, and is walking among the people of Jerusalem. And when presented with this news, how do they react? We would think their reaction was, oh my, he was right. He's been telling us he was going to rise from the dead all along. I guess he really is the Messiah. We should listen to him and obey him. That's what we would think he would say. Or what we would want to imagine that we would say if we were in that position. But instead they tell the soldiers, don't tell anybody. We'll pay you this money to make sure that you don't tell anybody. And even if you get in trouble, we'll make sure that that gets taken care of. We're going to spend as much energy as we can to not listen to this man who literally rose from the dead. Nothing. It's true. You will not be convinced by the rest of Scripture. You will not be convinced by the resurrection either. So how are you living? Do you live as if this is true? Do we look at these law and and the prophets and are we still able to close our heart to pity as we saw in the Psalms? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we we can find areas of our life where that has happened. Where we have looked at the homeless and said, that's not my problem. Or we have looked at our neighbors and say, I'm just too tired to tell them about Jesus today. Or just saying, well, I'll be obedient if this will happen. We get all pious about it and say that we're like, uh, like Gideon and we're going to leave out this fleece. It's like, well, if God really wants me to reach my neighbor today, he'll have my neighbor call me on the phone. He already said go. <laughs> it's in the Bible. To wait for another sign is not going to convince us. So stop waiting for that. So what do we take away from this passage? What are we to find? Well, I think one of our first things that we have to take away from this is that hell is real. And the reason why I really want to harp on that and what I feel like we've lost in that is one of the greatest tensions that we have in our Christian life is finding ways to tell people the truth and also love them. I think that's one of the big struggles we're dealing with in the General Assembly and the PCA right now. We're dealing with folks who are dealing with attractions that most of us don't understand. And we want to tell them the truth, that this is something that God says is wrong. But at the same time, we want to love them and recognize that they need the gospel just like we do. And the way that you balance those two things is recognizing the reality of hell. We can't be dishonest with them. The wages of that is too much. We can't tell them that sin is okay. But at the same time, this is the fate that's awaiting people that don't come to Christ. How can we just sit back and say that's not our problem? Whether we're personally grossed out by whatever sin that they have or we can't imagine how anybody could do something like that, we have to come and say, but hell awaits them. 
We have to have love for these people and tell them the truth. Because if we just love them and don't tell the truth, we can love them right into hell. And if we're truthful but not loving, then we can just push them away. But having this doctrine is a great weight to pull both of these two things together, to help us be honest and to motivate us to love. And I think if we do that, then we will get the spirit of what Abraham is telling this rich man. We will have heard the law and the prophets and Christ when we pull all of these things together. But hell has got to be real in our minds. We've got to live like hell is just a real place, is this room. And that if Jesus is right, and he always is, the majority of the people that are dying, 100 or so per minute, most of those are ending up there. I've been talking for 36 minutes so far. 3,600 people have died since I started this sermon. Most of those are going to hell if Jesus is correct. So what are we going to do? If that was where the book of Luke stopped, we would have a lot of concerns. But that's not where Luke stops. The wonderful thing is that there is someone who rose from the dead. And not to try to convince us, but to pay for our sin. We talk a lot about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, as we should. And he's taken the penalty for all of our sin. But we also need to take a look at the resurrection and what that means. That Jesus has paid death in full and is resurrected. And will resurrect us one day to save us from this fate. That's worth rejoicing and worth telling other people about. We have good news to bring to people. We can come to the rich man and the poor man alike and say, Jesus can save you. That Jesus can be your help. You can have something that's more than fine linens and purple clothes. Or you can have a hope that outlasts being leaned against a gate and licked on by dogs. That Jesus can speak to this entire spectrum of people and has something to say to us as well. So again, the takeaway from this passage is that hell is real. People are going there. But Jesus gives us the gospel to rescue and to save those who would be heading for that place. This is a beautiful thing. This is a serious thing. And it behooves us to live in accordance with it. To live in a way that respects this as real. Again, this is not trying to scare us into obedience. Saying it's like, well, look out. If you ignore poor people too much, you might end up in hell. No, that's not the point. The point is to say, this is what we deserve. But Jesus provides us another way. Jesus provides us a way that can change how we look at our life today, how we look at our resources today, how we look at other people today that will make an eternity of difference. That's the whole context of chapter 16. We don't look to our wealth. We don't try to serve that. We serve Jesus who even as bad as life could possibly get, 
can comfort us and can bring us into glory. That's what we want to bring to those people in our midst, to our children, to our neighbors, to those that we would think that are beyond God's hope, beyond God's reach, but we can bring them the hope of Christ. That's our call. We ignore it at our own peril. And we rest not in our righteousness. We don't draw comfort from the fact that we've ministered to poor people. We draw comfort from the fact that Christ can save us, that Christ is the one who has reached out to the poor, that Christ is the one who has saved us and has given us riches beyond what we can imagine so we can spend and be spent for this kingdom here and to live for Christ and rest in his work alone. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that's before us. I ask that you would impress the reality of hell on our hearts, that we would be moved with compassion to reach out to the lost and to rejoice in the gospel that you can save us from this fate and transform us so that we would live in a life that would be in conformity to your word. And I pray that you would also impress upon us the reality of heaven. That you would not only save us from punishment, but that you would bring us to a reward that only Christ deserves. But that you would share this reward with us unworthy beggars. I pray that you would impress that upon our minds. And that we would go speak the truth. Speak it in love that we might by all means save some. Ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.